Ahoy there, mates, and welcome aboard our Walt Disney World ferry boat. We are casting off for a mile-long journey across the Seven Seas Lagoon. But the koala is not a bear. <laughs> He's a marsupial. The lion sleeps tonight. Ever wonder how you'd move a giraffe? Well, as the keepers at Disney's Animal Kingdom can tell you, it takes planning, patience, and consistency. W. Your information station. Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. This is show number 48 for the week of January 6th, 2008. I'm your host, Lou Mangello, and I want to thank you for tuning in again this week and wish you all a very happy new year. We're going to start off 2008 just as we did in 2007 with Walt Disney World news and a wild visit to the Walt Disney World rumor mill. In addition to talking about some updated rumors, I'm also going to take this opportunity to kick off the new year with some of the very wild rumors I've been hearing about. Will they all come true? Probably not, but it'll be fun to talk about them and speculate as to what the future may hold. In my continuing efforts to introduce you to not only some of Walt Disney World's hidden treasures, history, trivia, reviews, and vacation planning advice, I also want to open your eyes to some of its overlooked experiences. This week, I have something special for you, as my guest, Dr. Ann Savage from Disney's Animal Kingdom's Wildlife Tracking Center, joins me to talk about the amazing work that's taking place both on stage and backstage, and how you can get involved at the park and when you get home. It's a fascinating look at the amazing conservation and research efforts that Disney continues to undertake each and every day. I'll also answer a number of your emails in our listener feedback section this week and play some of your voicemails at the end of the show. So as always, sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. We'll start off the news in 2008 with a way to possibly help you save some money on your next trip to Walt Disney World, because Disney has just announced that for a limited time, some guests can save money on their tickets. Florida residents can save more than 20% off the price of a Florida resident Disney Play 4 Days Pass, which is a significant savings off an already discounted ticket. During January and February, Floridians can purchase a Play 4 Days Pass for $125 plus tax. $105 for children ages 3 to 9. Then, for six months from the first day they use it, they can visit a single Disney theme park on any of the four days. This special price is available only through February 29th, and then it goes back up to $159, which is still less than $40 a day to enjoy the Disney parks. Proof of Florida residency is required, and you can purchase these tickets at any of the four theme parks. This week, Walt Disney World announced that children will no longer be allowed to dine at one of their premier restaurants. Effective January 1st, children under the age of 10 are not permitted in Victoria and Albert's at the Grand Floridian Resort and Spa. The restaurant, which is notable for its intimate setting, exquisite service, and unique dishes, is also the only AAA five-diamond resort in Central Florida. Disney spokeswoman Kim Prunty said the move was made at the request of guests who come to Victoria and Albert's for the ultimate dining experience in an intimate, quiet, and adult atmosphere. 
It should also be noted that the restaurant has never had any children's options and is a fixed price menu. This may be the only place other than nightclubs, bars, etc. that I believe such a rule is acceptable simply due to the expectations of the people that dine there. It's very, very quiet and not really geared towards children of that age, many of whom would probably not only not enjoy a dining experience because of the menu items and because of the environment, but because the meal could last upwards of four hours. The Disney community and family lost one of its true great treasures this week when artist Joyce Carlson, whose work ranged from coloring the lead characters of Lady and the Tramp to creating many of the doll characters for It's a Small World, passed away at age 84 last Wednesday at her home in Orlando. She began her career with an office job at Walt Disney Productions in California, running mail, doing office supplies, and getting coffee simply because she needed the work. But she always considered herself a very creative person, and she eventually found her way into helping ink Disney's animated films, including Cinderella, Peter Pan, and Sleeping Beauty. She later became the lead ink artist for the 1955 classic Lady and the Tramp. But as the need for ink artists decreased due to some advances in technology, she moved on to helping design models for attractions, beginning with ones for the 1964-65 World's Fair, and then for Disney theme parks in California, Florida, Paris, and Tokyo. She was mentored by many of Disney's first generations of attractions designers, such as Mary Blair and names like John Hench, and she continued in their tradition and commitment to precision and detail. She became the first woman in the Walt Disney Company to reach the 50 and 55-year service mark and retired in 2000, although she did remain somewhat active in Walt Disney World on a part-time basis until 2006. She was declared a Disney legend and was honored with a window on Main Street that reads, Dolls by Miss Joyce, doll maker for the world. I had the chance to briefly meet Joyce a few years ago and sit down and talk with her just a little bit. She was very, very warm and extremely pleasant and was so genuine when I thanked her for her work on my favorite film, which is obviously Peter Pan. She really she took the time to reminisce on working on it, and it was really a wonderful experience to share a few minutes with somebody who not only lived the dream and eventually became a Disney legend, but was such a real pleasure to talk to. And uh, she will obviously be very, very missed, and it's great to see that her work can still be appreciated, not only in films, but in the parks as well. I'll put a link up in the show notes this week to her page on the Disney Legends website. As always, if you want to discuss anything I covered in the news section this week, head on over to the forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. There we have the WDW Radio Show message forums where you can talk about and interact with other listeners about anything covered on this week's show. We're going to have a lot of fun in this week's Walt Disney World rumor mill because we're going to kick off 2008 with a couple of updated, almost confirmed rumors. And then I thought what we would do is throw out some of the bigger, dare I say, wilder rumors that I've been working on. Now, of course, I won't expect all of these or maybe any of these to come true. And when you hear them, you might even say that none of them will. But without getting very specific, I can tell you that some of these came from some sources, which I have found to be very reliable in the past despite just how wild they might sound. But let's go ahead and get started with what we kind of know first. Over at Disney's Hollywood Studios, I spoke about work being performed at the long-closed ABC Theater, although no details of what's going on inside have been released as yet. One thing that I have heard is that rumors of a codename, or even a working title for the theater, have been coming out, and that is 
the stars of Hollywood Hills. Now, you should know that Hollywood Hills is the storied location of the amphitheater that houses Fantasmic. The theater may re reopen as early as May or June, and speculation is that the new show will continue to get allow guests to interact and be a part of the magic, but this time in an American Idol-style singing contest. I will, of course, let you know more as I hear anything further. Another rumor that seems to be getting a lot of notice online is that there may be a change coming to the butler and maid's cast member narration at the beginning of The Haunted Mansion. It appears as though deviations from the narration guidelines may have been prompting Disney to create a sort of Jungle Cruise-like script that the cast members must follow. Now, while cast members have always had guidelines in order to stay in character, with recurring lines of dialogue being heard at different times in the foyer and the stretching room, no specific strip script has ever been used. Again, this is only a rumor, and I'm doing what I can to verify this. But if this is true, and depending on how the new script deviates from or stays loyal to the old dialogue, the casual guests may not even notice, but in any event, it can probably be viewed, hopefully as a positive addition and a plusing of the attraction, much like what's happened earlier, or should I say, uh, in 2007, and not really the removal of the fun and excitement that the pre-ride areas give to guests. The new building going up next to Disney's Contemporary Resort, which is believed to be the latest DVC resort, is expected to be the same height of the main tower building minus the California Grill Restaurant, which means the California Grill Restaurant will still give you the best possible vantage point to watch Wishes. Speaking of restaurant, it's expected that the Concourse Steakhouse is going to be relocated to the new building when it opens, and the old Concourse Steakhouse location is going to be taken over by an expansion of Chef Mickey's. All right, so now that I've hopefully whet your appetite with some of these minor rumors, let's get on to some of the rumors that are definitely a little bit more on the wild side, but I think will be fun to talk and speculate about. Let's start off by talking not about what's coming, but what's rumored not to be coming to Walt Disney World in the near future. According to one of my sources, nothing new is going into the Magic Kingdom anytime soon. One thing that my source had specifically asked about was the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea Lagoon. He was told that due to some things like diesel fuel leakage, the land there may have been contaminated and unusable, meaning that for the very near future, Pooh's playful spot is pretty much quote-unquote permanent. Additionally, rumors that something will take place where the theater in Tomorrowland now lives are also false. Over at Disney's Hollywood Studios, there's nothing planned for that park in the upcoming months or years other than what is currently under construction. This includes anything new for the old Hunchback Theater and the Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular. For the stunt show, because the theater is used by other events as well, there are no current plans to remove or change it dramatically. In Epcot, there are no new pavilions currently planned. Additionally, nothing is set for the old Wonders of Life pavilion, although rumors about it adding a third theater to Soren are supposedly true. Disney will also likely change the film at some point, probably to something akin to Soren Over the World. So basically, with the exception of things like Toy Story Mania and other general refurbs and minor construction, expect nothing major in Florida for some time now. Much of the attention and money is going to be directed over at the major expansion going on at Disney's California Adventure. Let's talk about resorts, though, as somebody came to me with something that sounds a little odd, but is maybe something you've heard before. My source tells me that not only will the unopened section, the legendary years of Pop Century, not open, but the unfinished structure will be torn down. This m sounds a little odd to me, uh, especially for a number of reasons, one of which is that reportedly 
the resorts at Walt Disney World have been operating at 97% capacity for the past few months. That being said, someone else has told me that a new resort would be coming, but this one sounds just a little bit too wild to be true. You decide. You may know that when Walt Disney World was being constructed, there were plans to build three additional resorts, an Asian, with a Grand Floridian now stands, a Persian, and a Venetian resort. In the 1990s, there was discussion about building another Seven Seas Lagoon resort, the Mediterranean, which was going to be located between the Contemporary and the Transportation and Ticket Center. While it was never built due to problems with the land and numerous sinkholes, believe it or not, a rumor that such a resort may still be built, but this time closer to Disney's Polynesian Resort. Like I said, I told you some of these rumors were a little bit wild. And let's save the wildest one of all for last. I won't even bother mentioning the rumors of a fifth park being built in Walt Disney World that have come and gone basically every year since the internet was born. But what I will tell you is this. A source of mine told me that in 2003, he had heard about proposed plans for a park just past Animal Kingdom that was not Beastly Kingdom. Well, last week, that same person, who has ties to Imagineering, said that designs for a park in that same location were once again being considered. According to my source, he says that the strange part is that he mentioned it being on the very high end and operating in the evening only, for example, 4 p.m. to midnight. Plans would include a lot of thrill rides and attractions, although here's the interesting part. It would be an all-inclusive park where food would be included in the approximate $300 price tag that would cost you to get in. Like I said, these are wild. I'm only reporting what I'm hearing. Could this be the quote-unquote Project H that I've heard people speak about, I'm not sure. But again, I just thought it would be fun to kind of throw these out there for the first show of the year and see which, if any, we hear more about during the year and which are just pure fantasy, speculation, or maybe wishful thinking on some people's parts. I invite you to come over, discuss these in the forums, or get on the air and call in your opinions and thoughts by calling the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. And of course, if you have any rumors that you hear about or anything you want to share, you can call the voicemail, discuss it on the forums, or send me an email to lou at wdwradio.com. Following in the footsteps and philosophy of Walt Disney himself, of not just his love of animals, but his work on education, conservation, and the environment, the Walt Disney Company has for decades made groundbreaking achievements in those areas. And more importantly, they've endeavored to bring that same education and appreciation for animals to its guests, from the simple introduction by way of attractions like the Jungle Cruise, to the first use of live animals in an attraction in the Living Seas Pavilion, In 1998, Disney took this guest's experience to the next level with the opening of Disney's Animal Kingdom. Beyond just being a safari-like attraction, the Kilimanjaro Safaris offers guests a unique opportunity to see animals in their true environments, all the while educating them about the importance of conservation and respect for the animals and their habitats. But we also know that Disney's Animal Kingdom is truly not a zoo, as Disney offers guests hands-on exhibits educational programs, and the, the ability to explore, interact with, and learn from the incredibly detailed environment that they're immersed in. 
It serves to inspire a love and appreciation for animals through its shows, exhibits, and attractions, and even more subtly through the beautiful artistic representations found throughout the park, including in the shops and restaurants. But what guests might not realize is that Disney's Animal Kingdom is also a real, working research facility, making incredible strides to learn about and help protect animals and their environments. And what guests also probably may not realize is that above and beyond what you see on stage and can learn from places like Pangani Forest Exploration Trail, the Maharaja Jungle Trek, and more specifically Rafiki's Planet Watch, is that there are other very unique opportunities for guests that are directly tied into this conservation research. And that's where my next very special guest comes in. She works at the Wildlife Tracking Center, both on stage and backstage at Disney's Animal Kingdom. She is Dr. Ann Savage. She is a senior conservation biologist and leader of the Wildlife Tracking Center Scientific Programs and Operations. And it's my distinct pleasure to welcome her to the WDW Radio Show. Thank you so much, Lou. It's great to be with you. Thank you. This is really exciting for me, and I think this is something that listeners are really going to enjoy because I I talk about all the time some of Walt Disney World's hidden treasures, and I think the Wildlife Tracking Center is truly one of those. So if you could, just tell us exactly what is the Wildlife Tracking Center to get started. Well, the Wildlife Tracking Center is a place where our guests can come and see some of the exciting work that we're involved in, both here at Disney's Animal Kingdom and around the world. We use the word tracking because that's what we do. We track a variety of different things. You can come to the Wildlife Tracking Center and learn about how we track animal communication. You know, we're actually putting collars around elephants that have recording devices in them that allows us to get a better understanding of what elephants are saying to one another. The majority of calls that elephants give are actually below the range of human hearing. It's called infrasound. So we spend a lot of time eavesdropping in on our elephants trying to understand what those calls really mean. We also track animal reproduction. If you want to know who's pregnant or not, this is a lab you come to. And we're just talking about animals here, Lou. Um, (laughs) Basically, what we do is we can run out and collect fecal samples from our animals and do a version of an in-home pregnancy test to decide which animals might be pregnant and which ones aren't. We also can work on contraception because for certain species, we've been very good at breeding them, so we need to slow down reproduction. And then, of course, we might want to understand when it's time to put males and females together. And in order to do that, we need to know when the female is ovulating. So we've developed some very specific tests that help us determine when animals are ready to breed. And then, of course, we have the traditional thing of tracking, which is where we put little telemetry devices on animals, and we can track them around the world. We've been working on a sea turtle project where we've put a little transmitter on a green sea turtle. We call him Little Crush. And this is a turtle that washed ashore, and he had over 70 pieces of plastic in his belly that he had ingested while he was swimming out in the ocean. We brought him to Disney's Animal Kingdom, and our veterinary staff um, worked on him and got rid of all the plastic. And once he was deemed healthy, we put a little transmitter on him and sent him on his way. We released him near Disney's Bureau Beach Resort, and we've been tracking his movements ever since. And the really exciting thing is this little turtle loves to stay within about 100 miles of the resort. Although it did take a uh, little four ways to the Bahamas for Christmas. <laughs> Sounds like that turtle has the right idea, staying near the resort, going to the Bahamas. <laughs> he doesn't know how good I he know, has. I know, I know. And those are just a couple of the projects. But some of our field projects that are going on are really exciting. Uh, we're working very closely with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, trying to build a conservation program for a tiny little animal called the Key Largo Wood Rat. And, you know, we predict that there are probably less than a few hundred of these animals left on the island of Key Largo, and that's the only place on Earth where they're found. 
So the Fish and Wildlife Service was very concerned about the population because, unfortunately, there's a lot of animals that like to eat Key Largo wood rats, namely uh, cats and other predators out there. In fact, we discovered a new predator of Key Largo wood rats, and that is the Burmese python. So many people know that Burmese pythons uh, have been found in the Everglades, and unfortunately, they came about because um, they appear to be released pets, and now they've worked their way over into the Keys, and they're eating our Key Largo wood rats, which is a real problem. So we were able to bring some Key Largo wood rats into captivity, and we here at Disney's Animal Kingdom have actually developed a new breeding program where we've figured out how to breed these little guys in captivity. And here's the great thing. They're a nocturnal species, so it's kind of tough to study them when we're all sleeping. But we've got these cameras that we can put over their uh, cages and we can monitor their behavior. And when the female wants to get together with the male, she wakes up a little early and gives these little raspy-like vocalizations. And that's a signal to us that it's time to put the two of them together. We've been very successful at being able to breed Key Largo wood rats, and uh, we now think we've cracked the code on, on how to do it. And we're very excited because we hope to be able to put some of the offspring that have been born here at Disney's Animal Kingdom back into the wild later this year. Hmm. The other exciting project that we're working on is in Colombia, in the country of Colombia, and that is with a tiny little one-pound monkey called the Cotton Top Tamarind. And this highly endangered monkey is found only in the tropical forests of northern Colombia. And it's an animal that's under extreme pressure because its habitat's being destroyed and it's being captured for the illegal pet trade. And we've been working in Colombia for many years trying to develop a long-term conservation program that not only educates people about the need to conserve cotton tops, but more importantly gives them options of doing the right thing, which is helping to protect cotton tops. Now the challenge we face with cotton tops is that many of the local communities that live near the forest don't have a stable source of income. And they live below the poverty line. So they're forced to go into the forest and capture these monkeys for the illegal pet trade or cut down trees for sale so that they can get money to feed their families. So one of our projects was trying to develop some type of economic alternative so that people would stop destroying what the tamarins need to survive. And it turns out we've come up with a really unique program and we call it our Eco Mochila program. And eco mochilas were born out of this kind of wild idea we had. Um, one of the challenges that we've been facing in these little communities is the management of waste. You know, when I first started working in Colombia 20 years ago, you would never find plastic bags littering the environment. But now they're everywhere. Just like it's here in the United States, we see plastic bags polluting our environment. Well, it's the same thing around the world. So what we ended up doing was actually coming up with a unique way to recycle these plastic bags. We trained a group of women in one of our communities, and they actually learned how to crochet, not with natural fiber, but with plastic bags. They cut the plastic bags into little strips and crochet these amazing bags that we call them eco-mochilas. Mm. And we then sell these eco-mochilas both in Colombia and around the world, and they've been able to generate a standard uh, income for these families so that they are no longer dependent on going into the forest and cutting down the resources that the tamarins need to survive. And this has just been really remarkable because many of the women that we work with had no education whatsoever and they've now been able to learn a new skill and become leaders in their community. And the communities have really bought into helping to conserve cotton tops and in fact they become our biggest advocates for protecting tamarinds for the future. They go from neighborhood to neighborhood collecting bags and telling the story of cotton top tamarinds and encouraging people to get involved. 
And we now have more than 100 women making plastic purses, our eco-mochilas, and we've recycled more than a million plastic bags in Colombia today. Hmm. I'm actually happy that you brought that up because I'm sure, as most people don't realize what you do beyond the Walt Disney World Park, they don't realize what you do in Central Florida and really that the the outreach of the Wildlife Tracking Center extends beyond the borders of the U.S. and really it's something global that what you're doing there. Right. You know, we really believe that whole idea of working in your backyard, in your neighborhood, and around the world. And here at Walt Disney World, we think of our backyard as the entire Walt Disney uh, property here in Florida. And here at Walt Disney World, over one-third of our property has been set aside as protected land. It's never to be developed. Um, And we've been doing a lot of work trying to conserve this habitat because it's some of the largest green space that you'll see in Central Florida. And we're also out there monitoring populations of birds and butterflies and mammals. And the interesting thing is that we have over 200 species of birds that call this conservation area home here in Central Florida. And it's a very exciting thing for us to be a part of. In our neighborhood, we think of our neighborhood as the state of Florida, and we have a lot of different programs that we've been working uh, to help support here in, in Florida. And, you know, the Key Largo wood rat is obviously one of them, but we also do quite a bit of work with our sea turtles. Um, in collaboration with the state of Florida and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, we monitor a stretch of beach for all the sea turtle nesting activity that occurs in Indian River County. It's about a six-kilometer stretch of beach. And that means that every morning we wake up and we get on these ATVs and we ride the beach and we look for sea turtle tracks. And our goal is to look for all the nests that are out there and we monitor how successful these nests are by keeping a constant watch on how they're doing. We spend a lot of time educating people on the beach as well. As they're walking along our beautiful Florida beaches, we need to make sure that people understand how important these beaches are for sea turtles and that they're expressing sort of the correct behavior when they come across a sea turtle trying to lay her eggs. And so in collaboration with the state of Florida, we lead a couple of sea turtle night walks so we can teach people the right things uh, to do when they're uh, out on the beach at night. But, you know, there's nothing better than seeing a sea turtle. And I would really encourage all of you, if you get the opportunity, to take one of the guided sea turtle walks that are offered in the state of Florida in the months of June and July, watching these females that have been swimming out in the ocean for about 40 years before they come to lay their eggs for the very first time. Can you imagine you're out there swimming for 40 years, and then all of a sudden you get the urge to come lay your eggs, and you come up at night, and you crawl up this beach, and then you spend about an hour digging this nest, and you'll lay about 100 eggs. You cover the eggs up, you head back to the ocean, and then you never come back and see what happens to your babies. About 60 days later, those little hatchlings emerge, and they all make their way down to the ocean. And it really is one of the most amazing things to see. And I'm glad to say that the Walt Disney Company is very involved in helping to support the conservation of sea turtles. Because here in, this, in central Florida, more nesting loggerheads come to nest in our beaches than any place else in the world. So it's critical that we do our part to help protect these areas and educate people about the need to conserve our beaches and protect sea turtles for the future. Uh, I'm happy you brought that up. I've actually had a chance to see the sea turtle um personally uh, at Marco Island in southern Florida and you're, you're right it's it's beautiful to watch and it's it's miraculous and it really gives you an appreciation for nature and environment and what they do and I'm also happy that that you brought up what you do on, on a more global thing because this really isn't something new people should understand this is not something new that's just started at Walt Disney World this has been in place really since the first before the first piece of dirt was ever moved Disney's uh, concern about the environment 
and its inhabitants was always in their minds uh, when they were first scouting the land for Walt Disney World, when Walt Disney World was was constructed and they made places like Discovery Island to give people an appreciation for nature and wildlife. And like I said, this is an extension of Walt's very early philosophy and love of animals and and uh, concern about conserving the environment. Absolutely. And you know, um, the Walt Disney Company is also very proud to have the Disney Wildlife Conservation Fund. And this is our organization that allows us to help support conservation programs around the world for a variety of different animals and habitats. To date, we've given away over $11 million to a variety of different organizations, and they are working to help save endangered species around the world. That's excellent. It, um, it's, and it's something that people, and we're going to talk about this at the end, that people can actually help out and be a part of if, if they really want to help contribute in, in more ways than just financially. But one of the things that you do there, um, I really found fascinating, and that was your work with the elephants. And I know that most guests probably don't realize that Disney's Animal Kingdom has the largest African elephant herd in North America. And the work that you're doing, and like you said, to use your term, eavesdropping on their, on their conversation, is fascinating because there, there's really a goal behind what you're doing, and you've made some pretty dramatic breakthroughs in what you've discovered right there at Disney's Animal Kingdom. You know, it's truly exciting to be part of a team that is making these amazing discoveries about elephant behavior and communication. You know, we've discovered two new elephant vocalizations that had never been reported in science before. And they are very interesting because they don't sound like a typical elephant rumble or those large trumpets that you typically hear. They're very sort of short in duration, and one actually sounds a lot like a frog croaking. You wouldn't expect an elephant to make a sound like a frog. Uh, But when we sent those sound files to our colleagues who work in Africa, they said, you know, we've heard these, but we just never realized that it came from an elephant. And so these two vocalizations are really interesting. As I said, the um, croak is actually a vocalization that they use when they're um, moving around, sort of exploring with their trunk. And we typically saw it in some of our younger males. And the other vocalization that we discovered is something called a rev. It sounds like a little bit like an engine revving, and it's always followed by a long rumble. And we've determined that it's actually a startle response. When one elephant kind of creeps up behind another and sort of gently pokes it, and the other elephant doesn't realize that someone's behind it, it gives a little sort of startle response, which is the rev, and then followed by a rumble. So for us, it's always fun to watch because it's typically, right now, we see a lot of these revs when the moms are off doing something and the babies sort of sneak up to our moms and and sort of surprise them. We've also been able to spend a lot of time studying our new African elephant calves that we have here, and we're very fortunate to have three young calves. And we're trying to understand how these babies develop language or their own elephant language. And one of the things that we've been able to find is that just like human babies go through sort of a protest when you know they're hungry or if they don't get the attention they want, well, our little baby elephants do the exact same thing. They actually throw their own little temper tantrums when they're not allowed to nurse on their mom when they want to. And it's very interesting because it'll start out kind of just a very low-grade kind of rumble, and then they get really, really upset, and the only way they can calm down is if the mom comes over and lets them nurse. So it's very cute to watch. Yeah, I think we all, you know, for the most part, don't have a real appreciation of how animals communicate. You know, we talk about maybe dolphin communications and how and how intelligent dolphins are. But what I read was that elephants, you know, beyond just these sounds that we, for the most part, are inaudible to us that you kind of convert into these visual waves, they also use, you know, sight and touch and even scent to communicate with each other? 
you know, we've made this really exciting discovery in that we've been able to combine some of our work understanding elephant reproduction with their behavior uh, and communication to give us a, a good, clear understanding of how they signal one another when the female's ready to breed. Now, here's an interesting thing about elephants. In the wild, they live in matrilineal societies, which means it's all females that live together, and the males are really far away. Well, we've also known that elephants only are fertile for about 24 hours. So how in the world does a female locate a male if he's not in contact with her? And it turns out one of the things that we found is that elephants have these two hormonal peaks, and it's a type of hormone that in humans typically signals ovulation, and that's luteinizing hormone, and they're exactly 21 days apart. Most mammals just have one LH peak, but for some reason, elephants have two. So we became very interested in trying to understand what's that function of the first LH peak. And it turns out that elephant females at that very first LH peak start vocalizing like crazy. And those calls are distinctly different from calls that they give at other parts of their cycle. And we think that call is serving to attract the males that are far away to come into the herd. Because it's exactly 21 days after that first LH peak that the female ovulates. And so we did a little study where we had our males and we allowed the males then to enter our, our female herd. And here's what happens. When a male comes into the herd, all of our females stop vocalizing. So while they're certainly interested in having a male around, I think they're a little nervous about having this big bull nearby. <laughs> so that means that the bull has to now sort of uh, change his strategy. He no longer has to listen to the female to try and figure out who's ready for breeding he has to now go around and use a different scent. Elephants have a very well-developed olfactory bulb in their brain, and they will actually be able to determine the female's reproductive state just by different olfactory cues through her urine and feces. So the male runs around and he starts sniffing all the females, and he can actually detect which female is nearing ovulation just by the way she smells. I'm very, I mean, it's fascinating that you're able to, dis to determine all this uh, in such a relatively closed environment. But the thing that I that I really found interesting was, like the rest of the world, the, the human world, the elephants are wired up as well. They have, you know, these collars that you made look like giant Bluetooth headsets, for lack of a better word. And they were developed with Disney Imagineers and engineers as well, correct? Absolutely. You know, we came up with this idea that we really wanted to understand what elephants were saying, but because they, their sounds are below the range of human hearing, we needed to come up with some unique way to be able to record them. And we also wanted to make sure that we were getting individual elephants. So that meant we had to be able to tell individual elephants apart. So we went to our, our colleagues at, at Ride and Show Engineer and said, hey, you know, you guys do all this amazing engineering here in our parks. Would you like to work with us on developing some technology that could help us record elephant sounds. And, you know, they just rose to the challenge, and it was this amazing partnership between us. And they've developed this collar now that not only allows us to record elephant vocalizations, but it has a GPS unit in it so we can monitor their movement and show how when elephants are talking to one another, it influences how they move either toward each other or away from each other as well. Hmm. And the cool thing about this collar that we've developed is it's got a great conservation story behind it. One of the amazing things about this collar is it's actually constructed from recycled fire hose that we get from Reedy Creek Emergency Services. So once they're finished um, using the fire hose, we reuse it and turn it into an elephant collar. 
Again, a testament to Disney's conservation and recycling. I mean, it really kind of uh, runs the gamut how you do it. But if you could, Doctor, tell us about some of the really exciting interactive guest experiences. How can the guest that comes to Disney Animal Kingdom really get involved with what you're doing or, or see what you're doing on stage and backstage? Well, one of the really fun things that uh, we do, especially that if folks that are interested in elephant communication, is that you can actually match your voice to an elephant rumble. And so the way we study elephant communication is that we can turn sound into some sort of visual representation so you can actually see what sound looks like. And so we have a microphone that our guests can speak into and they can compare their voice to an elephant rumble. And it's really fun to see what sort of information we convey in our voice and versus what an elephant conveys in their communication as well. So at the Wildlife Tracking Center, we have opportunities for kids to get involved in a variety of other things. You know, a lot of kids kind of have an interest in science, um, and they're not quite sure how to start. And one of the things that we do is we have a great little program for kids to help the scientists. You know, in our laboratory, we have this robotic pipetting device that is kind of fun to watch. It's very high-tech, and it um, moves all these things around, and chemicals get put on these different um, high-tech-looking pieces of equipment. And our kids actually get to help us by taking these little pipettes, which are these plastic tips, and helping load them in these racks, and then they can watch their rack go on the machine, and they really seem to enjoy that. They get to actually become a member of the Rack Pack, which is a big deal here at Disney's Animal Kingdom. And, you know, one of the exciting things is through the pin trading events, we have the Wildlife Tracking Center pin. And let me tell you, it's a really quite a prized possession because we only trade it during certain times of the year. And so for those of you that are really interested in pin trading, I hope you'll come to the Wildlife Tracking Center and try and get your uh, really classic Wildlife Tracking Center pin. You know, in addition, if you're interested in learning more about what we do at Rafiki's Planet Watch, we have a variety of opportunities for our guests who are visiting our park to sign up for different uh, activities. There's a program that we have called Backstage Safaris, which is an amazing program for adults to come be backstage here at Disney's Animal Kingdom and learn a little bit more about the work that's going on not only in the Wildlife Tracking Center, but in the Veterinary Hospital and, and in our Animal Nutrition Center. So it's a, a great way to get a sneak peek behind the scenes. Yeah, I was going to say, because Rafiki's Planet Watch specifically is not just for children. It really is for everybody in the family, uh, from very young kids who can do things just that they want to go to sort of the, the petting stations, to older kids that want to learn more, and even adults that really want to find out more and kind of get their hands a little dirty, so to speak, and kind of go backstage and really learn about what goes on there. Right. It's a place for all ages. You know, for the younger kids, we have lots of little fun activities and for the adults, we really have an opportunity to share some of the exciting work. And, you know, you can have conversations with the scientists that work in the laboratories. And this is really a great way for a lot of folks that are kind of interested in the field to spend that one-on-one -on -one quality time and get some career advice. And uh, we've had a lot of folks talk about how their trip to Walt Disney World has really influenced them to consider a, a job in the field of conservation biology. And then some of the other fun things that we can do is that you have the opportunity to um, do a little Where's Waldo type experience with us when we're trying to go out into the wild and search for animals. You know, one of the biggest challenges when we're out looking for butterflies in the wildlife area is that butterflies blend in really well with the environment. So we have a great game where kids can actually come help us try and find the butterflies in this very dense habitat that we have, and they can point out some of them and help some of the researchers uh, find these really cool butterflies. The other thing that you can do is play my all-time favorite game, match the feces with the species. <laughs> 
because, you know, at the Wildlife Tracking Center, we're all about looking at poop. <laughs> and that's where we can get that information about to doing our tests so we can determine which animals are pregnant or not. And there's a lot that you can learn about what an animal leaves behind. Not only can you figure out if, you're, if they're pregnant or not, but you can do a lot of interesting work on the diet of these animals. So, for example, if you were to take a look at elephant dung, you'll notice that you'll see lots of pieces of undigested food. And that's because elephants have a very inefficient digestive system, which is why they're eating constantly. And, you know, if you leave dung out in the wild, what happens is a lot of other animals, like birds, will come and feed on it because elephants will pass bits of food that are completely undigested, but perfectly good for other animals. And our guests seem to really enjoy those sorts of interesting facts about poop. The other interesting thing, too, is then you can compare elephant poop to, oh, let's say giraffe poop. And giraffes have a very efficient gut, and so they process virtually everything that they eat. And their feces is actually quite small. It looks about the size of a Hershey's kit. So most folks can never believe that um, elephants have these very large piles of dung where giraffes have just these tiny little bits of Hershey's kisses that they leave behind. Now, while I'm sure you're not encouraging children to go home and start playing with poop on their own, <laughs> it sounds like a lot of what you do there um, is really going to serve to inspire both kids and adults to do more, especially when they get a chance to go to the tracking center and go to uh, Planet Watch and interact with people that do this all the time. What are some of the things that guests can do uh, conservation-wise you know, when they leave Animal Kingdom and go home? Well, one of the most important things that we want guests to do is to get involved in conservation, and they can do that a number of different ways. There are some simple things that they can do while they're home. Think about the energy that they use each and every day. Are they using compact fluorescent lights that will help cut down a, a significant amount of energy that's used each and every day? Are they donating funds to different conservation organizations like the Disney Wildlife Conservation Fund or become informed and learn what conservation organizations are something that you might be interested in supporting financially? And then most of all, we want people to volunteer and get involved with conservation programs in their own backyard or around the world. There's lots of amazing opportunities. And in fact, Adventures by Disney can take you on some of these great trips around the world where you can see some amazing animals. Yeah, and I encourage people to take the time and really explore Rafiki's Planet Watch because above and beyond the tracking center, there's so much more there that you can learn. And we've just really scratched the surface on what you, you do there. Um, there are the Echo Heroes exhibits. There's the Animal Encounters. There's a self-guided backstage tour. There's the veterinary treatment room, which I just think is fascinating. You could really see the uh, doctors and the veterinarians caring for the animals. There's a hatchery and a nursery I'll put more information where you can find out about what you can find at Rafiki's Planet Watch. But, Doctor, what, what you do really seems fascinating and it's exciting and it's probably very, very rewarding on many, many, many levels. And really, to a certain degree, you're almost like, like an animal detective. And if people want to learn more about what you do or maybe uh, they're starting to consider entering in your field or kind of uh, you know, getting involved somehow, what's the best way for them to learn or the best way for them to kind of get started? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because many zoos will offer internships. And so it's a great opportunity to get some experience working with animals. And a lot of times they'll offer internships in different departments within the zoo, so um, with education or in their research department. Um, we also here at Walt Disney World have advanced internships for students that are a junior in college. Um, and we also, you know, welcome our students that uh, are interested in learning more about careers in science and conservation. 
if you really want to be a field biologist, the best thing you can do is start volunteering um, with a lot of these different organizations. There are many organizations, whether it's through the Audubon Society, the Nature Conservancy, that are looking for volunteers, and it's a great way to get your foot in the door and learn about what it's really like to work in the field. Absolutely. And and I'll just put in there as, a, as another quick aside, I know that in addition to what you've been doing uh, at Disney's Animal Kingdom and at the Tracking Center, you, you've also, to add to the excitement that I was talking about, you also had the, had the chance to travel with Joe Rohde to Asia, to, to really the mountains of southwest China and research the Golden Monkeys uh, for research on Expedition Everest. So there's a lot more than just kind of going through poop, so, so to speak. So um, <laughs> it, it really is fascinating. What I'll do, too, is I'll put some links up on the website where you can go to uh, Disney's Worldwide Outreach and Environmentally websites. You can also find out more about the Wildlife Tracking Center. Uh, Dr. Ann Savage, uh, Senior Conservation Biologist and Leader of the Wildlife Tracking Center, I really want to thank you for taking the time out today to tell us a little bit more about what you do and what Disney does as a whole, both in Disney's Animal Kingdom and around the world. Great, Lou. Thanks so much. It's been great talking with you, and I hope everyone comes to visit us in the Wildlife Tracking Center. Absolutely. I promise to come and see you next time I'm down. Great. Thanks. Thank you. Let's start off this week's listener feedback section with a question from Ohio Disney Dad, who writes, Lou, great show and website. I was wondering if you heard any rumors about free dining being offered again in 2008 for the general public. I know it's usually announced sometime around April, but I was hoping you had heard something from one of your sources. Thanks and keep up the great work. Well, Disney Dad, you're right. Usually it does get announced a little bit later in the year, but historically, uh, going back to 2005... Dates have ranged just a little bit. So, for example, in 2005, if you booked your reservation from June 2nd through July 3rd for a stay between August 21st and October 4th, you were eligible for free dining. Whereas in 2007, if you booked between April 12th and June 24th for any stay between August 26th and September 22nd, you would be eligible for free dining. Now, this past August, they were also offering something else, which was the bounce-back promotion for free dining. So... If you were willing to make your reservation for next year's trip before you checked out from your current trip, you would be able to get free dining next year. Now, what you can do, and this is probably what I would suggest, is if you do plan on traveling during that time period, so we're looking in maybe the end of August to the end of September, beginning of October, what you can do is make your reservation now, and then if they do decide to offer free dining, you can call back and have that added to your current reservation or change your current reservation to take advantage of it. You should note that you have to actually call. It will not automatically be added. So you need to pay very close attention online if and when Disney does decide to announce free dining. Obviously, when they do, I will definitely cover it on the show. The next email says, Hey Lou, thanks for giving me a reason to drive to work on Monday mornings. Your podcast is the highlight of each Monday. My family is traveling to the world the 31st through the 6th. To avoid being hit with the holiday rates the whole stay, we're staying at Pop Century on the 31st and moving to Wilderness Lodge on the 1st when value season begins. I believe I heard on your show that Bell Services would transfer our luggage from Pop Century to Wilderness Lodge. Is that true? I'll answer that question first. Yes, it is. If When you do check out and if you are going to transfer somewhere else, Bell Services or Disney will be more than happy to move your luggage to your new resort for you. Second question. 
Since this, since the first is our first full day at Walt Disney World, we want to get up and go right to the parks. But here's the dilemma: our Magic Away dining package begins on the first as part of our Wilderness Lodge reservation. We, will we have to physically go to Wilderness Lodge to pick up our room and park card, or will Pop Century be able to work something out? I'd like to avoid a trip from Pop Century to Wilderness Lodge, then back to Animal Kingdom if at all possible. Again, thanks for all you do. That comes from Chad from Muskego, Wisconsin. Chad, unfortunately, I think you're going to have to go over to Wilderness Lodge first and actually check in. Your room might not be ready first thing in the morning, but they do need to give you your key to the world card because that's what's going to have not only your room reservation on it, but where your park tickets uh, are going to be located on. So you can ask Pop Century. I mean, it doesn't hurt to ask Pop Century or call over to Wilderness Lodge. See if maybe you can check in early. Uh, maybe if you went the day before, they can give you the card. I would doubt it. But again, it doesn't hurt to ask. And thank you for the email. And speaking of Wilderness Lodge, the next email comes from Shannon Wells from Cincinnati, Ohio, who writes, Hey, Lou, love the show. I just discovered podcast and now I'm addicted. I have all of your shows downloaded on my computer and have been listening to them on my MP3 player during my commute to and from work and on my computer while I'm online planning my next Walt Disney World vacation. So nice to keep me company while I'm working. Shannon, thank you for letting me keep you company. But anyway, on to your question. Last year, we spent the most magical vacation at Walt Disney World and stayed for the first time at Wilderness Lodge. It was such a wonderful resort. I'm not sure I'll ever get my husband to stay anywhere else. I love the music playing in the lobby at the resort and tried to get a CD of their music, but one wasn't available. I've been crushed ever since, but the music you played during your Wilderness Lodge episode just brought me right back to that gorgeous lobby. I recognized some of the movies, such as Last of the Mohegans and Magnificent Seven, but I didn't know if you'd be able to share the full listing of music you used. I'd love to put together a Wilderness Lodge playlist for when I need to take that mental trip back. Shannon, thank you, and I agree wholeheartedly about the music in the Wilderness Lodge lobby. It is beautiful, it's evocative. Many of the tunes, like you said, are quite recognizable. Unfortunately, they don't sell a CD at the park or anywhere else of all that music. But what I'll do is I'll put a list up in the show notes for this week of all the different background tracks. I was able to get a list from the Wilderness Lodge Mercantile Shop. What you can do, you can probably find most of these on iTunes. So if you go to iTunes, pick out all of them or the ones that you want, you can kind of make your own Wilderness Lodge compilation CD. Again, you should be able to find most of these. Like they, like you said, they do come from movies like The Magnificent Seven and The Wild Ride, How the West Was Won, even Dances with Wolves. So I don't think you'll have too much trouble finding the ones that you want. Ben from Fayetteville, Arkansas, sent the next email, and he said, Lou, I wrote to you a couple of weeks ago about the flags in the square on Main Street in the Magic Kingdom. He said he wasn't really clear. I answered a question about the decorative flags that line the top of the buildings, but what he was really talking about was the American flag directly in front of Tony's. He said, I saw a ceremony this past May where a group of Disney security and some veterans took down the flag just before sundown. Someone told me that the flags that fly there only fly for one day and then are retired. Is this true? And if so, what happens to the flags? Fla- uh, ben, you're right. You're talking about the flag retreat ceremony. That takes place around 5 o'clock every day in front of uh, Town Square in the Magic Kingdom. What it involves is a color guard that lowers and folds the American flag, often with the help of a guest who is either former or active military If this is something that you or somebody you know is interested in participating in, you can ask guest relations over at City Hall for more information. As for the flag itself, I do not believe that it's retired every night. I will talk to somebody I know on Main Street, but from what I understand, they do reuse the flag. The person that does participate, 
I believe, gets a certificate but does not get to keep the flag. And if this is something that you have never seen, I highly recommend taking a few minutes to go and watch the flag retreat ceremony. It is beautiful. It is moving. And I think it's something that every guest should take just a few minutes to stop and go see. Allie from Centerville, Virginia, who's also Allie B on the forums, wrote and said, Hey, Lou, I'm a semi-recent subscriber to your podcast, and I found myself quickly addicted. Of all the podcasts I've sampled, yours is by far the most informative, most user-friendly, and most fun. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed your recent roundtable discussion about MouseFest. I laughed so much that people in passing cars must have thought I was crazy. Welcome to my world. Anyway, my question is about you and your personal choices when deciding where to stay during your quote-unquote research trips and vacations. How do you decide where to stay? Allie, I'll hit your questions as you ask them. So how do I decide where I stay? Well, I like to try and stay at obviously new resorts whenever they pop up uh, or resorts I haven't stayed at. And there are still a few like the Grand Floridian that I haven't had an opportunity to stay at as yet. But depending on the kind of trip, that's really going to determine where I stay. So, for example, if I'm going by myself on a quote-unquote research trip or something like Mouse Fest and I'm going alone, if I'm not going to spend a lot of time in the room, I'll stay someplace like Pop Century, which I really enjoy. I really, really like Pop Century a lot. If I'm going with the family... Uh, maybe I'll stay someplace like a moderate, like Port Orleans, French Quarter. Um, if it's just me and my wife, if it's something maybe like a special trip, not so much work-related, we might do something special like stay at the Beach Club or Wilderness Lodge. Those are some of my favorite uh, of, of the resorts. You asked me, do I base my choice on what my current budget allows? Absolutely. And when I go and where I go and where I stay... Um, Often may be dictated too on the type, the time of year I'm going, uh, what kind of discounts are available. Those are all the things that you have to just take into consideration because sometimes you can get some great deals where you can stay at Pop Century for as little as $79 a night, and that's a hard deal to pass up. Combine that with $59 from JetBlue, and you've got yourself a research trip. You ask, do you dare to tell us your favorites and why? Absolutely. I- I've mentioned them on the show, and I have favorites really on all three levels. Like I said, Pop Century, I think, is wonderful, especially if I'm not going to be in the room much, or even if I just want to go and try and save as much money as possible. For the moderates, I think Port Orleans French Quarter is the best of the best as far as moderates go. I love the small, intimate setting. I love the theming. Um, The pool is wonderful if you take part in it. You've got the Sasagula River right there, and the location, I think, is wonderful. As far as the deluxes are concerned, I'm really kind of tossed in between Wilderness Lodge, again, because of the theming. And you've heard me talk about it on on the show before, how much I really enjoy that. And the Beach Club. I think the Beach Club is beautiful. Location, location, location. And you cannot beat Stormalong Bay. Um, It is really a mini water park in and of itself. You're right near MGM. You're right near Epcot. You've got the boardwalk. You've got beaches and cream. So... Beach Club, again, you know, if you if you can make the numbers work, it is a wonderful place to say, and I highly, highly recommend it. You then ask, are there any resorts that I don't care for, and why not? And I'm honestly going to say, not really. Um, I, like I said, I've stayed at almost all the resorts, and there's something that I liked about each of them. Uh, if I had to give you something as an answer, I would probably stay say that, Uh, Some of the all-star resorts, maybe all-star sports is probably not my favorite, maybe due to the size, the location, the amenities, um, the food options there. For example, the food court there is not as good as what you get over at Pop Century, which is also a value resort. Uh, I think some of the rooms in the resorts are starting to show their age. I know Disney is starting to uh, refresh those rooms a little bit, but it would probably be one of those, um, again, just for those reasons. But I've stayed there before, and, and I'll probably end up staying there again, too. 
You then ask if I have any preferences for off-property hotels. And rather go into a long discussion about that here, I am going to cover staying off-property on a future show because it is a question that I get asked about a lot. And I know a lot of people want to or need to stay off-property for a variety of reasons. So I'm going to dedicate a full segment on the show to that. Um, thank you for your question. I hope I was, I hope I was helpful. Of course, you now have me curious as to what your favorite resorts are. And if any listeners want to call in or write in, tell me what your favorite resort is or, and why. Uh, like I said, we did a very detailed look at Wilderness Lodge. I promise I'm also going to do the same. Do some reviews and really in-depth looks at some of the other resorts around property to not only tell you what they have to offer, maybe the stories behind it, maybe some of the different dining options that they have, but introduce you to a resort that maybe you hadn't thought about staying at once before and might want to give a try on your next visit. Next email comes from Nate Parrish from Missouri, who wrote, Hey Lou, I heard that Playhouse Disney Live will be opening on January 28th. Can you tell me what characters will be in the new show? Our one-year-old son Hayden is a big fan of most of the shows, but mostly Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, Handy Manny, and the Doodle Bops. Also, I heard you mention in a previous show that there is a Handy Manny walk-around character. Is this still the case? If so, is he in the animation courtyard outside of the Playhouse Disney stage? Nate, yeah, Handy Manning, uh, around November of 2007, started making regular appearances over at Disney MGM Studios, now Disney's Hollywood Studios. Because uh, Pixar Place, where Toy Story Mania is being constructed now, I don't know where he's going to appear, but I would assume that it would be in the animation courtyard right in front of Playhouse Disney. As for the new show, uh, it's going to begin technically, according to Disney's website, February 2008, although, like you said, I believe openings are going to be at the end of January. You're going to have characters, like you said, from Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, Handy Manny, the Little Einsteins, and others that have not been announced as yet. I would expect those to be released in the upcoming weeks. One thing that I can tell you about the show and how it's going to change a little bit is the story. And here, you're going to have uh, the characters asking children to help become part of the magic and to create the best birthday party ever for Mickey Mouse. So I would assume that that's going to be the kind of the main thrust. These other characters will come out and kids like in the old show are going to be able to come up, sing along with the tunes that they know. And we as parents know because we watch Playhouse Disney as well uh, and really going to be that same kind of fun, interactive thing. So I'm looking forward to see it. I know my kids are as well. When you do get a chance to go down, if you if you'd like to call in or write an review, I'd love to know what you think of the new show. Next email comes from Bob, who says, Lou, I'm going to be down in early January with my family, but going back by myself the last week in January on business. I'll have some free time and did book the backstage magic tour. It's that sort of stuff that I love. I have nothing to actually research for, but I'm looking forward to taking pictures of trash cans and crates to see the looks I get. I'll then know what it's like to be Lou. Don't you know who I am, Mangello? Seriously, is there anything else that would be good for me to do? Any hidden places I should try and see? Like I said, I love the behind the scenes stuff. Well, Bob, you are doing the exact right thing because this is the perfect opportunity for you to take backstage magic. I've done it twice before. I just love it. And if you really want to get a sense of what goes on behind the scenes and get some of these other details pointed out to you, this is the one to take. Um, it's a long tour, but I think you're really, really, really going to have a good time. Uh, I agree. I think part of the fun of Walt Disney World is exploring and seeing what you can find and possibly finding out what some of the things that you see might actually mean. I think some of the greatest gems can be found in places like stores and restaurants or just as you walk through some of the lands. But what I'll do is I'll give you a couple of little 
things in each of the four parks just to kind of get you started. And over in the Magic Kingdom, like I said, check out some of the restaurants. Go walk through the Columbia Harbor House or the Liberty Tree Tavern. Look at the uh, architecture in Adventureland. There's lots of great details that you can see in Adventureland just by walking through uh, on Main Street. Of course, go through the shops. Take close look at what you see and what you hear. Uh, go over to the Frontierland train station. There's a lot of great little details just in the train station itself, um, as well as the facades in Frontierland. I mean, the Magic Kingdom is just filled with all these kind of hidden treasures. Um, over in Epcot, go to explore the pavilions in World Showcase. Go to the gardens. Go to the hedge maze in the back of the UK pavilion. Look at the waterfalls and the ponds and really explore Japan. Japan's beautiful, especially at night. Go inside the China Pavilion. There's some incredible details in there. And talk to the cast members, especially here, because they'll give you a lot of the meaning behind what you see. Over at Disney's Hollywood Studios, take a, a walk over to the Backlot Express restaurant. There's lots of good stuff in there. There's lots of great props in there. And really take the time to look not only around, but look up. There's a lot of things hidden on some of the shelves and things that you might actually see uh, from movies that you've seen in the past. Go to the end at the Backlot Tour. Um, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Look for the old Horizons vehicles up on the shelves. Lots of things from some old attractions as well. Over at Disney's Animal Kingdom, uh, really as you walk between... Africa and Asian, see if you could spot Divine. She is the uh, one of the most amazing characters and, and really is, is a moving piece of living art that I think you'll see. And explore the queue of Expedition Everest. Go in the standby line and take your time. Go through the Dinoland gift shop. There's a lot of funny things in there. And go over to the Yak and Yeti. If you ask, they'll actually give you a tour and tell you the whole story behind the restaurant. And that's so, you know, one of the true gems, one of the new true gems that I really, really enjoy. So there's a lot to explore. There's a lot to see. Again, Backstage Magic Tour or any of the, the Disney tours are a great way to get started. So um, hope that helps. And let me know what you think of the tour. Now, I won't shamelessly plug the audio guide, uh, but if you are interested in some of the details on Main Street, that might be something else that you want to take with you um, because I really try and help point some of these things out to you. But again, no shameless plugging, I promise. Our last email this week is going to come from Ron Martin, who says, Lou, I'm 31 years old, and my girlfriend and I are planning our first ever trip to Walt Disney World next May. Thank you for your podcast. It's been invaluable to our planning. While researching our vacation, I did have a few questions, and you seem like the best man to answer them, assuming, of course, you have the time. Ron, of course I have the time, so let's go ahead. I'll answer each of your questions as we encounter them. The first one says, we'd like to eat at the Buca Italia, I think that you mean Tutto Italia restaurant in Italy at the World Showcase. I realize it's a newer restaurant, but on their menu, they list a family meal section. Do you know if two people consist of a family? If so, is the $18.50 price for the table or per person? Ron, what you're talking about is the family-style abondanza dinner. And what this allows is they basically serve the meals family-style for the whole table. It includes an appetizer, two entrees, and a dessert. And the, the food selections uh, that you can make are, are wonderful. You can have lasagna. You can have different types of pasta. You can have pork. But... You have a couple of things that you have to keep in mind. Two people should be able to consist of a family, but the $18.50 price that you were looking at is actually only for guests nine and under. For people 10 and over, the price is $59 per person. So you're looking at $100 plus just for the two. You may be better off if that's too much food, just picking out individual appetizers and entrees and desserts for each of the two of you. You say that our first day at the parks coincides with Mother's Day. Yikes. Is there a huge spike in crowds for this particular holiday? 
I'm sure that you can guess by my yikes that uh, although the crowds in early May are usually pretty moderate, they're starting to kind of wind down a little bit, Mother's Day weekend is very, very busy. Um, and that I don't want to discourage you from going, but just be prepared that if you are going to be there for Mother's Day the first couple of days, it is going to be pretty busy. Um, there's also flower and garden going on over in, in Epcot. It's not going to detract from your experience at all. But one thing I would suggest is if that you plan on eating anywhere on property on Mother's Day, try and make your reservations as soon as possible. You go on to say, this is my first ever trip to Disney. We'll be in the Magic Kingdom on the first day. I was wondering, since this is my first trip, if you had any recommendations for the first ride I should go on. Well, Ron, because it's your first trip and it's something with your girlfriend, who you never know may eventually become your wife, I would try and say to pick something memorable. Uh, you know you, you know the classics like Pirates of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansion. That might play, be a good place to start. Or maybe if you're thrill ride people, go over to Space Mountain or Big Thunder Mountain. Start off with a real gatebuster attraction like Splash. Um, if you guys just want to you know have fun and act like a kid, go over to Fantasyland. Just kind of start there and wander around. Or better yet, if she has a favorite character... You know, appeal to her. See if she has any favorite characters. Is it Winnie the Pooh? Is it Peter Pan or Snow White? Those might be great places to start. Uh, again, just allow yourselves to be kid again, kids again and just have fun and, and explore. And I think you guys are going to have a great time. And your last question is, is it possible we'll ever see any of the characters from the Kingdom Hearts video game in the parks via a show or attraction or at all? I haven't heard anything about that, but I have to admit, people ask me this question all the time. So obviously, Kingdom Hearts is very, very popular, especially with the video game crowd. Um, I'm not sure that this is something if you'll eventually see in the parks, especially something as big as like a show or a full-blown production, simply due to how recognizable these characters might be uh, to everybody, you know, to the general population who don't play Kingdom Hearts. But then again, you never know. And while you are there, if you want to make your request over to Guest Relations, they will definitely listen. Um, Disney definitely listens to and takes note of the guest request. So that might be something you can go over there um, and mention to them. So I hope you guys have a great time. Let me know about your trip. Of course, if you guys have any more emails, please send them along. I do have a lot more to get to, but by all means, please keep them coming. You can send them to lou at wdwradio.com. And don't forget, if you want to be on the air, you can also call in your voicemail anytime at 206-202-4WDW. You can call in with a question. You can call in with a comment. Anything from the parks, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you for tuning in again this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks to my very special guest, Dr. Ann Savage from the Wildlife Tracking Center over at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Be sure to go and visit her and her staff at Rafiki's Planet Watch. Tell her I said hi. She and her team would be happy to talk to you more about what they do over at Disney's Animal Kingdom. You can also find out more information about the project, Disney's environmental effort, and some other links at the show notes page over at wdwradio.com. I also want to say thank you to you for all of your emails. Please keep on emailing the show and calling the voicemail so you too can get on the air. If you have an idea for a segment or something you'd like to hear about, just let me know. And you can also discuss the show and anything Disney on the forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. With almost 24,000 members, we are one of the largest Disney communities online. But I still believe that we are one of the most fun and friendly. And I invite you to come by and be a part of the DisneyWorldTrivia.com family. 
Please also go and visit the show notes page at WDWRadio.com for more information about my guests this week, including links and photos, as well as information mentioned during the email segments. On the site, you're also going to find some links to some of my recommended sites and friends of the show, including OrlandoFunTickets.com. They are the largest official and authorized Disney discount ticket provider. They always offer you the best possible prices. You can also go and visit my friends over at Owner's Locker. They have your personal storage locker. It's delivered to and from your resort. You can visit ownerslocker.com to learn more and sign up for the free trial. Also go and check out attractionsmagazine.com to subscribe or buy the new Orlando Attractions Magazine. The first issue just came out and the second is coming soon. It covers all of the Orlando area theme parks, including Walt Disney World. It features articles, reviews, and so much more. The first issue had a great recap of Epcot's 25th and lots more, so go by and check that out. The first of my audio guides to Walt Disney World is now available. You can get that over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. It's on CD. It's Main Street USA. Look for the next in the series coming soon. Also, as I get ready to launch the new DisneyWorldTrivia.com site and expanded trivia section, I'm still looking for old photos from Walt Disney World, specifically from the 70s to the 90s. If you have any that you want to share of old shows or shops or attractions, maybe some extinct items, things maybe just outside or inside the parks, please go ahead and send those over to Lou at WDWRadio.com. Next week is the Walt Disney World Half Marathon, which I will be running in. I will have a show next week, but if you are going to be down in Walt Disney World, come on and visit the WDW Radio Show forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Let us know by signing up on the Who's Going thread. There's also going to be a post-race meet scheduled at the Tomorrowland Noodle Station. That's at 2 o'clock on Saturday. So if you're around, I invite you to please come by and say hello. Thank you again for tuning in, as well as all of your support. Please continue to help spread the word to other Disney fans and communities. As I said last week, the motto for 2008 is that if we can dream it, we can do it. I want to thank you for joining me again this week. So until next week, I'll see ya. Hey, Lou. Big Brian here of the Mouse and Death Podcast. Just listening to your Mouse Fest recap. You got to the part where you were talking about the Kilimanjaro Safari meet and trying to come up with the number. I happen to remember it was 257. Just thought I'd share that with you. Keep, keep up the great podcast and keep on mousing it up. Bye for now. Hey, Lou, this is Corey from New Orleans, Louisiana. I was just calling up for one, thank you for the wonderful podcast. It's my favorite podcast. And uh, two, I was listening to some of your old episodes, and I heard you talking about the uh, possible Walt Disney uh, audio animatronics. And I was just, along with that, wondering... How come no one's ever made a movie about Walt Disney's life? I've read several biographies on Walt Disney, and I think his life and his story is fascinating, considering how much, you know, uh, he's done for the American people with movies and his, you know, vision and the parks and everything. Just wondering if anybody had any opinions on, you know, do they need to make a movie about his life, or why don't they have a movie about his life? Um, anyway, keep up the good work. I love the podcast, and... uh Hi, you were asking last week about for reviews of the new Siemens game down at Spaceship Earth, so I thought I'd call in with one. I can't remember the name, but what I would compare it most to is probably a game of shuffleboard, techno shuffleboard. What they have is they have a projector up above a floor, and on that floor you have these pucks that represent energy. Each one is say there's coal, there's natural gas, 
Um, there's nuclear, and there's something called Siemens Clean Energy. It's a, it's a not-so-subtle plug. And you have to shuffle the pucks from power stations to different areas on a grid to give power to this part of the city. If you take the Siemens C 